Well, uh, I'd like to welcome you all to what is the LSE Law Department, actually, moved here to the Old Theatre, my favourite lecture hall in LSE, and we're starting a new series here, and it's called Conversing with the Law. And the idea is to try and get under the skin of the legal system and to try and develop a kind of informal rapport with individuals who have these very important roles in our system. And later on, we have a leading High Court judge, Sir Ravindra Singh, and then Professor Sir Roy Good from Oxford, and then in the new year, an ex-president of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, Jean-Paul Costa, and uh, senior Supreme Court judge, Baroness Hale, and others. So what we're trying to accumulate is, in an informal context, I'll repeat that, a kind of sense of what the law's about. And what we're not doing is the usual thing, where this person to whom I shall turn in a moment, Keir Starmer, writes a 40-minute speech, and then you ask questions, and then everything stops. We're not doing that. Uh, we are the first event which has, first event in LSE, I've checked with Alan, who's uh, head of conferences, we're the first event to make Twitter and social media an integral part of the occasion. Now, uh, you may be wondering what this seat is for. There is a purpose for this seat. In due course, I'll be inviting the tweet guru to join us, but that's for later. And we've been asking, as you may know, on Twitter and in other places for uh, questions for our distinguished guests this evening, and we've been getting lots. And rather than, in the old way, discourage you from having your phone on, I'm encouraging you to keep your phone on. Uh, but a phone in the sense of not receiving noisy calls, please. And if you have a question which occurs in the course of the next little while, you can send it to uh, at LSE Law, and you can use the hashtag LSE DPP. And these will be immediately evident if you've got your Twitter feed yourself, and more to the point, they'll be evident to our tweet guru. And so as the evening proceeds after a shortish presentation by the DPP, to whom, as I say, I'll come in a moment, we'll have a mix. We'll have some tweets that we've made earlier, like Fanny Craddock, and we'll also, oh, that's a very old person's joke, I can tell the average age is young, uh, and we'll also have questions in the old-fashioned way where you use, I believe it's called a hand, and you raise it, and we'll take two or three of those, and then we'll go back to the tweeting, and uh, Kier will answer effectively and quickly, and we'll develop a kind of energy in the room, and you'll come out of this with an understanding of the kind of life that the Director of Public Prosecutions has in this legal culture and political culture. And that's a fantastic thing. Now, I need to tell you, and you all know, but I need to tell you there are some things you cannot really expect the DPP to uh, comment on. Specific cases, if you've got a neighbor whom you really hate and you've wondered why he hasn't been prosecuted, this is not the evening. You can buy a pen with yellow writing and you can write to the DPP with a special mad person's envelope later. But please, please don't do it this evening. Please don't do it this evening because it will just be embarrassing for the DPP. You'll have to say uh, you're mad but not in a way which is direct. 
So exercise some control, because there's enough to talk about without going into specific cases. Uh, now, you know, I'm talking in this disrespectful way about a man I respect hugely, and it's not a coincidence that we've asked Keir Starmer to come here and to initiate this uh, innovative way of doing conversations about the law, because Keir is a very close friend of mine going back over many years. He went to the University of Leeds. Uh, he did his BCL at Oxford. Uh, he's been a barrister for quite some time, since 1987, and a Queen's Council uh, from 2002. Now, he's also been very much involved in one of the most innovative and progressive chambers of lawyers, barristers, in the United Kingdom, Dowdy Street Chambers, uh, where he was joint head for a while. And he was Human Rights Lawyer of the Year in 2001 and QC of the, of the Year in Human Rights and Public Law in 2007. He has been in a variety of extraordinarily important cases across a whole range of jurisdictions and covering a whole range of matters. He's also been responsible for one of the best books that came out in the early days in the Human Rights Act, which has grown and grown, I think, here from the original, the Lag book. Do you remember? Yeah. The Lag book. So in his spare time, he wrote a really first-class book on the Human Rights Act as well. Now, uh, he took on this new role, uh, well, it's an old role, but he took it on as a new thing, as the Director of Public Prosecutions in November 2008. Now, you know, that was obviously under a Labour government, and we now have a coalition government, and the marvellous thing about the legal culture is the way in which these offices are, are, if not immune to political change, they're not dependent on political patronage. And I'm sure Kier, if asked, will speak about that too. And he's had these remarkable responsibilities to do with, for example, new guidelines on assisted suicide, decisions on prosecutions of people which are very controversial. Uh, and we're very, very lucky to have him. And it's almost eccentric of me now to say, in welcoming him, that he has only got 15 minutes, but he's only got 15 minutes because we want to push further and deeper than we normally would. So can you please give uh, a very warm welcome to uh, the DPP, Keir Starmer. Uh, thank you very much, Connor. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm very grateful to the LSE Department of Law for inviting me to be a guinea pig this evening in their new form of um, uh, seminar. This is intended to be a conversation and not a lecture, and therefore I'm going to keep my comments short uh, so that we can get into that question and answer session uh, as quickly as possible. What I thought might be useful to give some context to that conversation is just really to uh, introduce you all, remind you uh, what the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service is, uh, and just tell you what my role is uh, in that organisation. And then to move on to something that we've been grappling with lately, and that is really to introduce uh, the issue of how uh, a prosecution service should hold the balance between free speech on the one hand um, and enforcing the criminal law uh, on the other in an era of uh, social media. First, though, the CPS. Many of you will know, um, and if you don't, the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, was created in 1986. Before that, criminal prosecutions were brought by the police, either themselves uh, or using county solicitors. The CPS was introduced to add uh, independence from the investigator, um, to introduce prosecutorial um, expertise, 
and also to develop a national consistent approach because um, when you had the police prosecuting, you had each police force bringing its own cases according to its own um, approach. Um, it follows from that, and this will help with the questions, um, that the Crown Prosecution Service does not have the power to investigate crime. We prosecute, we look at the evidence that's been investigated by others and take decisions, but we don't have a power to investigate crime. Very often I'm asked, um, why don't you initiate an investigation into this, that or the other? Um, there is no power that I have or any CPS member of staff has to initiate uh, an investigation. But we are the gatekeepers to the criminal justice system. Um, we either decide whether a case should be charged or re re review cases where the police have charged an individual. So, in a sense, um, no case can really come before the criminal courts in this country unless it's come through us in some shape or form. So we have a very important gatekeeping um, function. Uh, and obviously beyond that, we have the responsibility for um, preparing the case and actually prosecuting it um, in court. Now that, um, as you can readily see, uh, means that we are brought into daily contact with victims, with witnesses, with suspects, defendants, uh, the police and other law enforcement agencies, and of course the courts. And to give you an idea of the numbers, year on year, there are hundreds of thousands of defendants prosecuted through the magistrate's court, and nearly 100,000 uh, defendants prosecuted through the Crown Court. I want you just to think about that. Assume for a moment that there are three or four critical decisions in every case. That means that between me and my staff, we're, we're taking many millions of decisions that are of critical importance to all those cases. And almost unlike any other public authority that I can think of, all of our decisions are challengeable in a public space, the court, day in, day out. Uh, and that brings a great focus onto the work we do uh, and a great visibility to everything that we do, which really doesn't apply in many other um, areas. The range of cases um, is from the extremely complicated international conspiracies uh, right down to um, very minor cases. So um, we prosecute international terrorist cases, large-scale organized crime and fraud, ranging through murders, drugs, rapes, and other sexual violence cases, to the less serious assaults on the street, public order, harassment, and theft. Even the theft of a bag of crisps from your local shop uh, will have to be considered at some stage by us. So from international conspiracies down to very minor offenses, we do the entire range. How do we do that? We've got 13 regions across England and Wales, um, so there are 30, uh, 13 CPS regions, and we've got five specialist divisions, and the specialist divisions are classically counter-terrorism, uh, fraud, serious and organized crime, etc. I've got about 7,000 staff, which is a lot less than I had before the spending review of 2010, um, and we are occupying about 65 offices across England um, and Wales. As DPP, I head up the Crown Prosecution Service, and essentially that means I uh, take the lead on all legal issues and carry ultimate responsibility for our policy um, and ultimate responsibility for all of the decisions that are made in all the hundreds of thousands of cases day in, day out by the CPS. I'm an independent post holder. 
I'm appointed by the Attorney General, but I'm on a fixed-term contract of five years and independent of government. And that's why, as Connor has already uh, said, uh, it makes no difference to me that the government changed halfway through my term of office. Um, the relationship between me and the government is one really of superintendence. I'm superintended by the Attorney General. That means he answers for me in Parliament, but my decision-making is independent of him. It's a quaint English arrangement, but it works pretty well. Um, how does that all come together, and how do we lead that into a conversation for this evening? Well, I think there are two ways in. The first is the code for Crown Prosecutors, and the second is a little insight into the thinking on um, social media. The code for Crown Prosecutors... Um, is something you may or may not have um, come across. It's the most important document for the CPS. It's the document that governs how we approach the decision whether somebody should go to court or not. It applies to every single case. All those hundreds of thousands of cases must be uh, decided in accordance with the, count, uh, the Code for Crown Prosecutors. It's a publicly-facing document, as nearly all of our policy and guidance is, uh, available on our website. There are two critical tests in the code that I'll just introduce you to. The first is we will never prosecute a case if there's not sufficient evidence to provide a realistic prospect of a conviction. Just repeat that. We will never prosecute a case unless there's sufficient evidence to provide a realistic prospect of a conviction. And that's really important. Um, I've lost count of the number of times that individuals who know the law very well have said to me, why didn't you prosecute X? Uh, and when I said, well, there wasn't enough evidence, said, yes, but look at what he or she was doing. It would have been important that they're put in the dock. But the golden principle is if there's not enough evidence, the case does not proceed. Full stop. The second test in the code is, assuming for the moment there is enough evidence to provide that realistic uh, prospect of conviction, is a prosecution required um, in the public interest? Uh, and it's that second test that's been quite prominent in a number of the policies that I've had to be involved in and a number of the cases. I think the best example is probably the assisted suicide policy that we had to draft uh, on the back of what was in fact the last case that the House of Lords decided before it moved across to the Supreme Court. Uh, and that was a case uh, where the House of Lords decided that the Crown Prosecution Service ought to be clearer through guide, guidance about the circumstance in which we would prosecute uh, someone for the offence of assisted suicide uh, and the circumstance in which we wouldn't prosecute someone for assisted suicide. And we consulted and uh, issued a policy document. But that's all about the discretion. All of those cases about assisted suicide proceed on the basis that there is enough evidence uh, to prove the case. And the question is whether the case should be brought in the public um, interest. There are other examples more recently... We've, as you may have noticed, uh, been involved in rather a uh, large-scale investigation into hacking and other activity uh, alleged at a number of uh, newspapers. And in the course of that, we've issued guidelines um, indicating the circumstance in which we would or would not prosecute um, cases affecting journalists. And the critical question there was whether we should prosecute a journalist where there was enough evidence that they'd committed an offence, but what they were doing was in the public interest. And just to give you a little insight into two examples, um, the Bribery Act was passed in uh, 2010, um, and the first case that was ever prosecuted under the Bribery Act um, was a case prosecuted by us, the CPS. 
and it was a clerk at Redbridge Magistrates Court who a Sun reporter thought was liable to be corrupted. Uh, so they sent a journalist along, uh, passed an amount of money to the uh, clerk, uh, asking him to make a case go away, and the hapless clerk took the money and agreed to make the case go away. We got a rather easy conviction because the Sun journalist passed the information to us, but the Sun journalist had probably committed an offence by offering the bribe in the first place. Um, and we obviously had to exercise our discretion as to whether it would be a good idea or a bad idea to prosecute the Sun journalist. And, and unsurprisingly, uh, we took the view that it would not be a good idea to prosecute. Um, another example um, would be the um, expenses saga. The Daily Telegraph, as you'll recall, um, on an almost daily basis, published details of the expenses that MPs and others were claiming. Um, now, we never received a file in that case, but if we had, we might have had to consider whether uh, the first prosecution should be of the MPs that they'd exposed or the journalists for exposing them. And so we needed guidelines to help us through that, and that's the sort of issue on which we've had to grapple when it comes to whether or not we should prosecute in the public interest. My approach to the Code for Crown Prosecutors is we've got to apply it and we've got to be seen to apply it. So what you may have noticed in recent years you've seen more of is um, a public um, announcement about the way in which we will approach certain cases followed by reasons for either prosecuting or not prosecuting. And so what we've tried to do is be much more transparent to say this is the way we approach this sort of case and this is why we made this sort of decision in this particular case. And it seems to me that is critical to both visibility, so that people know what we're doing, and accountability, because I don't see how you can hold me to account if I don't tell you up front how I'm going to do my job and explain to you afterwards what decisions I reached. So we've been much more visible than we were uh, before. And that brings me on to social media. Recently, as you probably appreciate, there have been a number of cases where individuals have been prosecuted for comments that they've made using social media. And that has brought into sharp focus um, what the appropriate balance should be between free speech on the one hand uh, and the enforcement of the criminal law on the other. Now, until social media, uh, there were some uh, long-established rules about how you held that balance. And they depended, broadly speaking, on the place that you spoke and the likely reaction. You could say what you like in your living room, but if you went into a public square and said it, that raised different considerations. So where you said it was important, but there was a space that was preserved where you could say what you like. Or uh, the likely reaction. If you said something uh, which wasn't likely to provoke somebody else to do something nasty, that was pretty well all right. But if you um, provoked somebody to um, violence, then probably there might be a limit in what, on what you could say. So broadly speaking, we had these two control mechanisms uh, for uh, the reach of the criminal law. Now, they don't seem to me to apply very well to social media. Um, and therefore, the question arises as to if there is to be a balance, if the reach of the, co of the criminal law is to be um, properly restricted in some way, uh, what are the governing principles, what are the restrictions that take the place of, or are added to, place and um, reaction? Because um, it's obvious that social media, communications by social media, are very often spontaneous, multidimensional, 
um, and uh, often a little bit risque. Um, and speech is captured in a different way. Once you've used social media, you've probably um, provided evidence of what you've said in a way that you could never really have done if you'd said something in your front room, in the street, in the pub, or in the cafe. Because it's said in a medium that makes it very much more easy to record. Um, and volume is an issue. Broadly speaking, uh, our research suggests there are about 340 million tweets a day. 340 million. And that there are 901 million Facebook subscribers. Assuming each of them posts one message a day, and from what I've seen, uh, many post many more than that, that's 900 million messages. Um, and although the harassment laws, um, the incitement laws, may apply to some of those cases. There's another provision that applies, and that's caused us to scratch our heads and have a good hard think about this area of the law, because there's a provision that you probably won't be familiar with. It's Section 127 of the Communications Act. That was a provision that was really intended to deal with telephones when they were first introduced on a wide-scale basis back in the 1930s. And that makes it an offence to uh, communicate a message which is, quote, grossly offensive, indecent, obscene, or, or, or menacing. So grossly offensive, indecent, obscene, or menacing. Now, you can work out as well as I can, if only a small percentage of the 340 million tweets a day or the many hundreds of millions of communications on Facebook fall into that category, there could be very, very many cases... Um, coming to the attention of the authorities. And therefore, what we've been trying to do is to find a way to uh, get the right balance between free speech and um, the reach of the, common, uh, of the criminal law using Section 127. And we need to try and agree that approach. What we've done is um, we have held a number of roundtable discussions with interested parties to make sure that we're fully cited on all the relevant factors. Uh, and then I intend to issue interim guidelines uh, in about a month or so, which we will then consult on for three months before having final guidelines. But um, I'm clear in my mind that the threshold for intervention for the criminal law has got to be set pretty high, because otherwise uh, we will not be able to protect the free speech that is integral to the use of um, social media or any um, uh, speech. That is uh, a discussion, a debate we're in the middle of, um, and um, obviously... Uh, in the course of that consultation, I'd welcome yours uh, and anybody else's views on whether we've got the balance right in these difficult um, cases. Connor, I'll leave it there and pick up, if I may, in conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. What we're going to do now is move on to the next phase, and I'm going to actually ask the Twitter guru to present himself. Bradley. Bradley is our Twitter guru from the Law Department, Bradley Barlow, and he's been the organisational genius behind this event. So, Bradley, I think we're going to start with a tweet, but you want to introduce 
this next phase. I do indeed. Um, just to remind you, if you want to send a tweet, it's at LSE Law. Uh, use the hashtag LSEDPP. I'm trying to uh, provide some kind of running commentary as we go, but as your questions come in, I may be inundated, which is the hope. Um, so please do keep sending us the tweets. So I am reading them and I'm selecting our favourites. So our first question, does section 127.1b of the Communications Act 2003 mean a person who retweets grossly offensive comments could themselves be prosecuted? Right, so it's actually the one you were talking about right at the start. So we'll take a, uh, one, one or two of these, then we'll go to the audience. But, uh... Uh, yeah, well, this is a good question to start with. This is the critical provision in the Communications Act um, because any communication which is grossly offensive is caught by the Act. Uh, that raises the question of whether it's grossly offensive or merely offensive. Um, but assuming it's grossly offensive then anybody who makes the communication or retweets the communication um, on the face of it commits an offence under the Act. And that, again, gives you an indication of um, why it's vitally important that our guidelines make clear the circumstance in which we would prosecute. If we prosecuted each and every case that technically was made out under Section 127, um, my own view is that there would be a chilling effect on free speech and we've got to set um, the balance in such a way that we protect free speech and only prosecute in the cases that really need a prosecution. But technically, if you retweet, you commit the offence um, under the Act and that is uh, one of a number of concerns to us. And it doesn't ma matter why you're retweeting. If you're only retweeting to say, can you believe somebody has really said this, you commit the offence. Uh, and that's why, um, as I say, our guidelines on this, I think, are going to be uh, of some um, real significance, I hope. What about people who have other people who do their t tweeting for them? Would the other people who do the tweeting for them be responsible if there were one done in the name of X, a celebrity who never uses it, were judged grossly offensive? It's the person who sends the tweet. It's the what? person who uh, presses the... Um, yeah. key that sends the tweet. You could compose something for somebody else to, to tweet. And this is the interesting thing. You, are, you could sit in your living room with uh, a friend in the chair next to you. You could say something grossly offensive to that individual by way of comment and you would not commit an offence. If he or she said, oh, that's really good, I'll tweet it. Uh, or you said, I think that's so good, I'm rather pleased with myself, I'll tweet it, same message, but you then send it via telecommunications uh, system, you commit the offence. Supposing it's got some political dimension here, like you're an animal rights activist or you're somebody who cares passionately about the pharmaceutical industry and its abuses, and you are absolutely convinced that the communication is central to your political campaigning, and you know that it will be judged offensive by kind of orthodox opinion, but you're trying to change orthodox opinion. Uh, is there a risk that this is a way of controlling that, you alluded to it in your talk, controlling kind of bona fide political speech, which after all has to be offensive sometimes? I think there are two answers to that. The first is the Human Rights Act was passed in 1998 and came into force in the year 2000. And that brought with it Article 10 of the European Convention. And this is really important. Article 10 of the European Convention, as, as everybody here will appreciate, 
um, protect not only speech which other people want to hear and appreciate, but also uh, speech which they find offensive and insulting. So that speech is protected to a point. So first, you can um, uh, and you're entitled um, to say things which are offensive uh, or insulting to other people within reason. That's the first point. The second point is, of course, the prosecutor has a discretion whether to prosecute in any given case. Um, and context here is everything. As you'll have appreciated from some of the cases we've already had to look at, um, context can sometimes be absolutely critical. If you say something within hours of a family finding out, for example, that their daughter may not be alive anymore, that is more keenly felt than something said weeks or months afterwards, even the same message, but at a different time in a different context. Now, somehow, in our guidelines, we've got to uh, explain as best we can the circumstance in which we would use our discretion um, to prosecute or not to prosecute. Yeah. But there are acutely difficult um, issues, and I think the political speech thing uh, is part of that yeah. uh, debate. And interesting, retweeting is more vulnerable because it's at a distance. Yes. Uh, can we take one more from the, yeah, from sure. the community of leaders? Sorry. Our first... Uh, a most appropriate one, I think, is should Twitter be subscription-based to reduce offensive tweets? Well, I'm not sure I'm in a particularly good position to um, answer that question. We, one of the um, questions we've raised is what uh, impact on the decision to prosecute um, should be um, the reaction of the service provider. So if, to take an example, somebody tweets something or sends a message which is grossly offensive, is it relevant that the service provider intervened, uh, froze the message, removed it, uh, froze the account and removed the message? Um, and I think it may be uh, relevant because it may mean that a prosecution is less likely to be required. Now, that's led us into a discussion um, with some of the service providers. We had the... Uh, uh, policy uh, manager director in from Facebook the other day to say, well, where do you see your responsibility on this? Because to some extent, um, the criminal law really ought to be seen as the last resort, not the first resort. Um, and there are other ways of dealing with some of this material than resorting to the criminal law. So I don't think that answers the question whether subscription is right or wrong. But I think there's a real issue here for service providers because what we're saying to them is, where's your responsibility as well as our responsibility in this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's uh, take one or two from the audience. I think it would be quite good to stick with this social media point for a while. Or, but if you have another thing, we can come back to it. Uh, any hands up? There's this gentleman here. I'll take a second. That gentleman there. We've got two. Um, looking for... Let's take those two and let's see if there's any... We've got a gentleman at the back. So we've got three men. This is becoming a very male evening. But we don't know about the gender of the Twitterers. So there we go. Uh, you could say, you could say who you are, uh, and you could make sure the microphone is on, Sorry. and you can keep it really short. So hello, I'm uh, I'm so I'm Hamza Hassan. I'm the brother of Dal Hassan, who was just um, extradited, the assessed suicide risk, who was just extradited to the United States. Um, I want to know whether there's any circumstances in which the director of public prosecutions can intervene in an extradition case or which would mean um, a sort of reassertion of uh, national or legal sovereignty. Okay, thank you. And I especially appreciate the brevity of that question. 
We had a second person who I think now needs to remind us of who he is. There he is. And he's waiting for the microphone. He's got the microphone. What an effective system. Um, Name and short question. Uh, My name is Kieran. Um, I was just wondering at what point you thought uh, uh, what would be considered a private message, a private tweet, enters into the public domain, whether there's any uh, basis on what can be considered public speech on social media. Thank you very much. And our final gentleman who wants to continue, I think it was you, sir. Yes, name and Thank question. Uh, yeah, Martin, i just um, wondering if you've got any th- thoughts on the resources that the police and yourselves are having to expend on these uh, social media cases, as you said, millions, if not billions of messages, uh, apart from the free speech. So I do think there's a resources aspect to it as well. Thank you. Great. In your own... Uh, yeah, order. I'll take those in, in that order for me, starting with extradition. Can I just set out um, briefly for those that are not familiar with the two capacities in which the CPSRI get involved in um, cases involving other jurisdictions? We are prosecutors, not investigators, and therefore if there's an investigation in this country and a file is passed to us, we can take a decision whether to prosecute. We are also but in a separate part of the organisation, the agents for other countries who want to extradite people from this country. So if another country wants to extradite someone from the UK, they need a prosecutor in the UK to represent them in court, and the CPS represents them. So we've got um, these two functions, uh, and they're entirely separate, and that's really important. If country X says to us, here's a file, um, here's the extradition request, Here's the formalities. We would like you to conduct the expedition proceedings on our behalf to extradite um, the following person to our country. Um, what we can't do is say, well, we've had a look at this. We're going to pass it over uh, to the other team uh, to see whether they wouldn't like to prosecute in this country. We can't do that because we've got it in our capacity as agents for the um, country in question. So if the Americans pass us a file in relation to an individual, um, they are not passing it to us to look at for the purpose of extradition and to have a look also whether we wouldn't like to prosecute in this country. They're passing it to us for a specific purpose in relation to extradition. If there's an investigation in this country as well in relation to the same individual and the same conduct, that then does give rise to a question of in in which jurisdiction should the individual be tried. Uh, And there we've got a number of principles um, that we apply and um, They're pretty common principles. There's a lot of case law on this from around the world, and there are some principles from Eurojust, which is broadly the principles of the European countries. Um, I won't go through them all, but most relevant are where was most of the criminality, where was most of the harm caused, where are the witnesses, where can the case be best prosecuted, etc. So those principles are then applied, and in conversation uh, with other countries, we resolve... Uh, the jurisdiction issue. That's broadly how it's done. In some instances, obviously, um, it may well have been resolved before we're involved, because if the police have been talking to other uh, law enforcement agents in another country, they may already have decided that one of them will take priority in the investigation, and we may not uh, get to make a decision. But where we do have to make a decision, we do it according to those principles. That's the first question. I think the second one was, um, when does a private tweet become public enough to possibly be prosecuted. Um, And this is one of the issues. As I've said, the Communications Act, Section 127, 
um, was passed, was first passed in 1935. And it was intended for telephones and, um, to some extent, postal communications. And it was intended to protect the individual on the other end of the phone from someone being really abusive when phones were becoming much more common. Um, it now applies um, to communications sent by social media. And that, that raises a number of difficult issues because there's a provision which wasn't, as it were, intended for social media but now applies to it. As a matter of law, the moment the message goes, if it's grossly offensive, the offensive is committed. And it doesn't matter if it's going to one person, a hundred people, a million people, ten million people. Um, and um, I'm not advocating this as good, bad, or indifferent, but that is um, the way Section 127 um, applies. So it, it has not got built into the section any sort of ring-fencing of private conversations. If that's to be protected, it's going to have to be protected in some way through our guidelines, which is why our guidelines in the end are going to have to do quite a bit of work. The third question, I think, was about resources, and it's a, a, an interesting and um, important question. Um, at the moment, there are relatively few cases involving um, social media that um, are uh, being considered by us and coming to court. There's many more in the last six months than there have been um, since I've been in post. I've been in post now four years. I think it's only in the last six months I've really had to look at these cases. There have been quite a number of them, particularly in recent months. So it's a small number. It's growing. Um, one of the issues we have to um, look at and appreciate is that um, most of those 340 million uh, tweets, however many hundred million Facebook messages, never come to the attention of the police. The ones that come to the attention of the police at the moment are the ones usually involving a high-profile individual, and that is because um, it has been retweeted or gone viral because it's about a public or high-profile individual, uh, a celebrity, a footballer, etc., or um, where um, someone is the subject of a, 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 a huge tragedy, um, and hence you get these hero sites whenever there's um, a tragedy. with a Raoul Moat one, uh, up in Cumbria, there's, there was one created in Manchester when the two officers were shot. And so it involves either people who are high-profile celebrity or, or have unfortunately and tragically been dragged into the public domain through something usually horrific that's happened to them or their family. Um, so the resource issue is not a major concern at the moment, but there is a concern there because obviously if um, any great number of these cases were prosecuted, um, it would have the effect of many cases being brought before our courts that aren't currently brought before our courts. I have uh, a concern about that from a free speech point of view. There are obviously resource implications as well, and whether as a society we think it's a good use of our money to bring a constant stream of people before the magistrate's court for what they uh, may have said um, using social media. Yeah, it's sort of not our society, though. It is kind of you, isn't it? I mean, there is this incredible... Uh, am I running away from the idea of power? Almost kind of... You take this broad thing passed in 1935 to do with phones, and you're making judgment calls which will determine how many people there are brought into the courts. Yes. I mean, the way we um, have set up the constitutional arrangements in this country is that the prosecutor does have this discretion whether to prosecute or not. And it's very important for us to exercise that power properly. It's a really important discretion. It's deciding whether someone is going through the criminal process or not have a huge effect on them, their family, 
the victim, etc. And we're vested with that responsibility. And it is a heavy responsibility, and these are very difficult cases. The, the, the assisted suicide cases are very difficult. My own view is, being steeped in um, public law for many years, that if you're exercising a discretion, you must do it transparently. Because if I've got that discretion, I should be accountable for how I exercise that discretion. And for me, that means a policy explaining how I'm going to approach a problem and reasons explaining why I've come to a particular decision. Because otherwise, that is a discretion which could be um, used in a way which wasn't proper, but under the disguise of, of the prosecutorial cloak. So it's, it is an important discretion. Um, we have to exercise it carefully. But it is understood that we should exercise it. There are some countries where the prosecutor doesn't have a discretion. Therefore, every single case must be put before the court. Um, I don't think that's uh, a good idea, um, and uh, I don't think that system um, has the uh, flexibility of our system. But there are some systems that operate on that basis. So uh, if you have a 12-year-old who does something really stupid, some minor offence, for which they're very sorry, their parents have told him off, the school's given him a dressing down, and nobody wants anything to happen, have to go before the court. I don't think that's a good idea. Well, let's hope that the Daily Mail are not listening, because a campaign will produce some speech from the Home Secretary. Bradley, <laughs> you don't have to comment and react to that. Bradley, can we take another one of yeah, our sort of rather posh uh, on the screen uh, messages? This comes from at Lord Mosley. If he is a lord, I don't know. Um, if you a private you what you want on Twitter, <laughs> I think, Lord Mosley, can't you? <laughs> if a private conversation is prosecuted, would that breach Article 8 of the Human Rights Act, even if it occurred on social media so it was not secret? Kind of half I think I've half dealt yeah. with that. Article 8 is obviously the right to um, uh, family and private life. Um, which is protected, but um, not um, uh, absolutely protected. And I think it's pretty well the same answer I gave to the gentleman here. Um, on the face of the statute, um, there's nothing that um, distinguishes between a message that goes to one person and a message that goes to very many other people. Can we take uh, another one? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, this comes from the LSE Media Policy and Law. Uh, are guidelines on prosecution of journalists enough, or do we need a generic public interest defence for public interest journalism? This is a really interesting um, question. In the guidance that we drafted um, for cases affecting journalists, we had to look at all the possible offences that journalists might commit in the course of their work as journalists. And they vary. I mean, the, the ones that everybody at the moment is focusing on are um, hacking into telephones, um, payments or receipt of pay, payments to individuals for information, etc. Um, but there are many other possibilities, um, including um, offences under the Data Protection Act, um, where even the receipt of certain information by a journalist uh, in a certain form may... Um, amount to an offence, um, even in circumstances where the journalist doesn't know until they read the information what it is they're being passed. Now, um, you can see how uh, it's very important that we're clear as to which of those cases should be prosecuted and which shouldn't. In our guidelines, what we said is, when we're taking a decision whether to prosecute um, a journalist or someone who interacted with a journalist, we will take into account the public interest in uh, the publication they were working on. Um, and therefore, um, we will take into account uh, the public interest and weigh it uh, against the overall criminality. So if you're breaking a story about corruption, 
that is an important consideration when we're deciding whether you should be prosecuted for a breach, let's say, of the Data Protection Act. But we've done it under the guidelines. The question is, shouldn't it be, forget your guidelines, um, wouldn't it be better if there was an overarching um, public interest defence um, and then you wouldn't need your guidelines or at least you wouldn't need to rely on them so often. Now, I don't have a view whether it should be a public interest defence or not. I think there are practical issues um, that have to be thought through by those that advocate it, um, not least that the range of offences that we've had to consider uh, cover the common law, quite a lot of different statutes, um, and range from very serious offences with long penalties to reasonably minor offences with um, short, fine penalties. Um, an overarching defence either means all the common law offences would have to be put into legislative form before you could put in a statutory defence. Well, that's quite an exercise. That would be to codify pretty well um, that area of the criminal law. Um, it would also require specific amendments to each and every act that might create an offence. Or you have an overarching one-line um, bill that says there's a public interest offence for dot, 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 and that then needs to be filled in. <laughs> Is it for journalists? Is it for journalists when they do X, Y, Z? Is it for accredited journalists? Or is it for others who are trying to break a story but may not be accredited journalists? Now, I'm not saying it can't be done, but there's a lot of work, I think, um, to be done in um, working out how that would actually work in practice. Not impossible. I'm not advocating it. Um, I'm not against it. But I think it's got to be seen in that context, which is why, for the time being, and assuming that might take some little while... <laughs> I thought our guidelines might have been some practical significance and importance in the interim. Can I, ask, can I ask a question about the process here? Because one of the most extraordinary things on your watch has been these incredibly powerful people, before whom politicians have quaked, who have had the capacity to destroy lives when they felt like it, who've been brought to courts and have left those courts shouting their innocence in the ordinary way. And the process question is, there's just you, and you use the plural we, are there systems that enable you, as the representative of, and in a way the defender of this organisation, to know about decisions which then can have this impact on public affairs? And how can you always anticipate that prosecutorial decisions will, 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 will not produce the kind of effects that we have seen from time to time? Well, there are, I think, two parts to that question, if I've got it right. The first is, what are the sort of oversight mechanisms yeah. that make sure that... Um, the important decisions are overseen, brought to either my attention or um, senior prosecutors. Exactly. Um, and um, also a bit about the reaction. I mean, the, the arrangements we've got, there are, as I've said, there are roughly 900,000 um, defendants in the magistrates' court and about 100,000 in the Crown Court. Now, a lot of those are motoring, etc. There's hundreds of thousands of cases. Um, I have to empower my staff to take decisions on the front line. There's no way all those decisions can be brought into our headquarters in um, Rose Court and looked over by me. So I have to empower my teams to make decisions. That means I um, uh, revel in the celebration when they get it right, and I carry the can when they get it wrong, and that's part of the deal. Obviously, some cases are more difficult, uh, require a degree of expertise or are sensitive, and we've got in place arrangements for dealing with those cases. And those arrangements, broadly speaking, are for certain offences 
there's got to be a certain level of authority before a charge can be made or a certain certificate of expertise. So rape cases have to be looked at and considered by rape specialists. They can't be looked at by um, ordinary um, prosecutors who don't have that particular ticket. Um, Across the country, we then run um, various what we call case lists um, where cases which fall into certain categories are brought to my attention. There's a list of two or three hundred uh, that is produced every month where I'm cited on those cases. So I'm told what's happening, what's developed. Um, I then get specific briefings um, on quite a number of those cases to tell me what is happening uh, so that I can have oversight of them. And on occasion, um, I have panels uh, in those cases to walk through with the team where they've got to and quiz them about the decisions that they've either made or are about to make. Uh, That's a snapshot. It's more sophisticated than that. Within each area, there are checks and balances. But there are these uh, arrangements in place to make sure that, broadly speaking, the more difficult, sensitive, complex the case, the higher the degree of authority to make the decision. Is that driven, we'll go to Bradley in a minute, but is that driven by, ever driven by personality? So does the fact that somebody is hugely well-known mean that even in a case which is relatively trivial, you have some system whereby you know about it? I think it's... One of our criteria is whether the case would have reputational implications for the CPS. So that may be because it's a particularly sensitive case. It may be because it's about a particularly sensitive issue. So it's not person-specific, but it is... I'm obviously concerned about any case that may have reputational impact for the Crown Prosecution Service. But you'll be surprised often the ones we're grappling with the difficult ones are cases which you wouldn't necessarily have thought would uh, have a reputational issue but take off for one reason or another uh, and then we've got to look at them and they may on the face of it look as if they're not the most important case in the world yeah. Brad, do we have anything from the hall that's just come in on Twitter that you'd yeah, like I to mean, do? There is the one uh, does the Reynolds defence not cover generic public interest defence? Uh, the Reynolds defence for those of you not um, familiar with it is a civil um, law concept by which um, there is a defence in civil proceedings if the defendant, usually a journalist or a publisher, has gone through various steps to verify their story and provided an opportunity to someone to comment on it. Um, the short answer is uh, that's a civil law concept which has not yet been borrowed across to the criminal sphere. Thank you. Nice little follow-up on Twitter there. I think we go for an old-fashioned hand or two if we've got anybody who wants to do it. We have a gentleman. I'm going to favour females as well, so we have this lady here and we have this gentleman. We'll start with you, madam, and your name and short question as usual. Okay. Hi. Uh, my name is Susan Cook. Uh, I'm a graduate of the MSc Human Rights Program here at the LSE. Um, my question relates to the Independent Police Complaints Commission. Um, the CPS prosecutes a very tiny percentage of the most serious cases um, referred to refer to them by the IPCC. And I was just wondering, your opinion really, do you think it's fair when their evidence-gathering capabilities are so weak, when they don't have you know, the power to compel uh, officers to be questioned, that they're held up to the same code as referrals from police officers who can do just that? Thank you, Susan. Uh, and we had a gentleman who's... I, yes, it was you, sir, and you've got the microphone. Excellent. Name and question. Uh, David Mead, I've got a question about the guidance for prosecuting peaceful protesters. Uh, It's in two parts. The first is very quick. Why should somebody taking steps to avoid their identity be something that would sway in favour of a prosecution, uh, which is in the the guidance? And the the second, more general one, what's your definition of peaceful? Because one of the, the factors against prosecution is that the protest was essentially peaceful. I was wondering whether that was the opposite of violence or the opposite of disruptive stroke obstructive. 
thank you very much. While the DPP absorbs that, I'll, I'll say to colleagues that the nicely mild-mannered David is in fact seething mead in Twitter. Is that right? Have I outed you? It is common, yes. So he's a very mother's chap in person, but give him a machine and he turns into seething mead. <laughs> so, Kier. Uh, uh, so far as the IPCC is concerned, I'm not, I'm not really going to uh, comment very much. I mean, the, that, that's a question for the IPCC. We've got a relationship with them. They pass cases to us and we prosecute cases that they've investigated. We try to make that work by having a, a memorandum of understanding with them about how that process is to work. And that, broadly speaking, uh, involves us um, asking to be involved at an early stage whilst the investigation is still being carried out so that uh, we can give such advice as may be helpful about how the particular investigation is shaped for the purposes of a prosecution, if that's the appropriate outcome. I don't think for cases that don't come to us it's appropriate for me to comment um, on them. I think the Home Affairs Select Committee is looking into the IPCC in some in recent months, so no doubt that will be explored there. Can I deal with the peaceful protest um, issue? Um, because it goes back to the exercise of discretion. In a uh, modern democracy, it's, really, it's important that people are able to po protest um, peacefully about the matters that are of concern uh, to them. Sometimes when they do so, they commit uh, offences, um, whether it's breach of the peace, a minor public order offence, um, aggravated trespass, etc. We have to decide whether to prosecute everybody um, who crosses the criminal threshold um, when they're protesting um, nobody or, or draw a line somewhere in the middle. Um, and what we've tried to do is draw a line in the middle and to give an indication as to the sorts of cases we will prosecute and those that we won't. These are only factors. So there's no rules here, they're factors. But uh, we have sought to distinguish between, as it were, the peaceful protester who gets caught up in criminal activity, but was essentially peaceful uh, and, and, and got themselves the wrong side of the line. And the guidance broadly suggests that um, a prosecution would not always be needed um, in those circumstances. Um, and on the other hand, someone who um, does commit acts of violence is not peaceful. Um, and one of the factors we take into account is whether that person has taken active steps to avoid detection because it seems to us that's a relevant consideration as to whether their intention was peaceful protest or whether it may have been to involve themselves in criminal activity. Not a golden rule doesn't mean if you've got a mask, uh, you're prosecuting. If you haven't, you're not. But it's an indicator to us as to whether you fall the one side of the line or the other. But these are the difficult judgment calls we have to make uh, in this area as in many others. Great, thanks. Uh, Brad, should we go for uh, yeah. either one we had already? Or, uh, Let's go for one of these. One of the ones we've got already? Yeah. This is from our friend Seething Mead. Oh, uh, David, you've got two in a row now, you see? The uh, multiple persona. <laughs> Should we do it? Let's go for it. Uh, Jack Straw on WATO uh, indicated no need to change drugs law and downgrade as CPS has prosecutional discretion. But DPP last week indicated offensive speech on social media that constituted required... Constitutionally required. Thank you. No, that's fine. You had, to, you had to compress the question. It's, I understand. Uh, required to enforce law of land as passed by Parliament. Who is right? Yeah, can I just give the... I didn't say it's constitutionally required to enforce the law. What I said was this. When we approach this debate about social media in Section 127, um, it would be the easiest thing for me, um, and I could do this on a number of occasions, to say it's not me and the prosecutors that are getting this wrong or need to think about this. It's the law. You need to change the law. Don't come to my door, DPP. Don't ask me questions about 127. Go and see your MP. Um, 
It's, uh, but uh, the approach I take is that um, part of my job, at least, is to make the law uh, workable, um, and that's where guidelines, have, broadly speaking, come in. But what I can't do is say, I don't much like that law, um, and therefore we're going to adopt a policy of not prosecuting under that law. So if Section 127 is in force and Parliament's passed it, the sovereignty of Parliament's important. Any policy on my part not to enforce that provision in any circumstances would be unlawful. And that was the point I was getting across. I can't say I don't like the law. I can't say I won't prosecute any offence under that provision because I think it falls foul of some principle or other. So I'm duty-bound to act within the law. That means that the ex- I've got to exercise my discretion properly under the law. That means deciding whether to prosecute the case or not. And that's actually consistent with what Jack Straw was saying. I think, I haven't, I didn't search for his comments, but I couldn't find them in the time available. But I, I don't think there is that inconsistency. I'm not saying because the law's there, we'll prosecute every case where the evidence is made out, because that's never what we've done. So within all that, there is a consistency. I mean, it's an analogous one, perhaps, before we go to Bradley in the audience, but as far as I understand today, the Prime Minister said something about investigating some instance related to the allegations about Jimmy Savile. And it's, I think, your office, or CPS, or whatever. Can people... What's the role of political leaders in sort of leading you to investigate, or is there, is, is there any kind of relationship there? Could you speak to that relationship between, say, political leaders and your office in regards to investigations and decisions to prosecute? Yeah, we're independent of the government, and that means ministers can't tell me whether to um, investigate or prosecute any case. And we put arrangements in place to make sure that I'm uninfluenced by that. So to give an example, when we had to consider whether to prosecute MPs or not, um, I had a conversation... Uh, with the then Attorney General I had another one with the uh, Attorney General now person. I said I'm not going to consult you on these cases I'm not even going to tell you the names of the individuals in relation to whom we've got files because um, I don't want there to be any perception of influence um, by a government minister because you may know some of these people they are obviously party political so we've got arrangements in place to make sure that doesn't happen all the Prime Minister announced today was a decision that we'd already taken uh, to look at the four cases um, or four files that have been passed to us um, by the Surrey Police in 2009 in relation to Jimmy Samuel. I've already asked uh, uh, last week the Chief Crown Prosecutor in the South East to consider the papers that were considered three years ago and give me an assurance that the right decision was made in those cases. Um, I'm now um, requiring my principal legal advisor uh, to look again out of an abundance of caution. But that's my own independent decision because I just want a degree of assurance that we've reached the right decisions. I've already got it from a chief crown prosecutor. Um, I want to, out of an abundance of caution, get it from my principal legal advisor as well. Okay, so the Prime Minister is just commenting on your day-to-day activities, really. Well, I think he was responding on yeah, what all the um, relevant departments were doing yeah. about the situation. But. Yeah. Uh, Bradley, do you have uh, one that's come from the floor or do we have another one? I mean, there are a lot of comments. Um, yeah, let's have some comments. Yeah, basically uh, regarding the kind of whole retweeting of a, of a tweet. There are people. He brought, he brought a law enforcement officer with him, so you could be frog marched out of the building if you make a mistake here, Bradley. I don't want to have to decide whether to prosecute these people. There, there, are, there, are people, there are people warning, be careful when you, when you retweet something. Um, some people saying that it's worrying that this this uh, would be considered, um, but it's kind of it's creating a bit of debate. Yeah, yeah. I find the Twitter community tends to be rather libertarian. Would that be true? I mean, anxious about 
uh, oversight concerned about the criminal law and its potential to restrict? I think they are anxious about it, but I understand that anxiety because free speech is really important. We've got to protect it. And that means um, that the threshold uh, for criminal intervention has to be high. And we have to use our discretion to make sure only the cases that require a prosecution are brought to court. Nothing I've said about retweeting should be taken as an indication that um, those are cases that we're looking to prosecute. I'm simply making the point that as a matter of law, uh, you are caught if you retweet in just the same way as if you send the message in the first place. But the whole reason we're having round tables and we're going through this anxious scrutiny is because we are concerned to protect free speech uh, and get the balance right between free speech and uh, enforcing the criminal law. So people who use social media are anxious about that. I'm not surprised. Yeah, thanks. We have a bit of time for a couple more. We're going to have to begin to think about winding down. I'll take some from the floor. That, that gentleman's had his hand up a few times. And this lady here. So we'll take these two. Yes, sir, you've, you've put your hand back up. Yes, it's you. And this lady here in the middle. Well, I wasn't aware of this. And you, uh, just say who you are, sir, and then. Um, Tom Davidson. Uh, nothing very much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like one of those tags in Twitter. <laughs> and I've no idea what tweeting is. <laughs> but um, I had no idea that you were prosecuting people under this 127, section 127. I mean, it seems to me there's a clear distinction and you could, you'd be justified in not prosecuting uh, tweets under that section. Because if I, for example, considered that Christians who um, ate chunks of Christ or whatever it is they did uh, were cannibals and rang up a Christian who I knew was a cannibal and uh, uh, was a Christian and then accused them of cannibalism. <laughs> accused them of cannibalism. Um, one, it's being actively offensive. Um, it's sort of, if you like, invading their very personal privacy. It's directing them as in, it's, it's, it's directed at them as individuals. Whereas if I tweet that Christians are cannibals. Um, uh, that seems to me it, it, it's, it's legitimate. It, it might come under defamation, um, but I can't see that the... It seems to me there's a clear distinction. One's, if you like, a passive offence. Um, I can read it and disregard it. Whereas someone's telephoning me, um, they're being actively offensive, and I think you'd be justified in saying Section 127 isn't appropriate for tweeting. Ooh, well, two things about that. The first is... The case law. The first is... The question is, as a matter of law, would it constitute the offence... The second is, as a matter of principle, should a prosecutor prosecute? As to the first, I'm afraid it is an offence if it's grossly offensive. That's what Parliament decided, and Parliament passed the Act. And I'm, it's not in my gift to say I don't think that's an offence. Um, as to whether we should prosecute, that obviously is something that is of central concern to me. And one of the things we are considering is, does it make a difference that the individual was intending to communicate with one or two or three people or whether they were intending essentially to broadcast to many um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, whatever. And there may be room for a distinction there, but that will have to be done um, looking at the discretion of the prosecutor. The offence is made out in both those circumstances if it crosses the threshold for highly offensive. Thanks. And we had our... Is that... Sorry. Yeah. I'm quite across. Uh, madam. Uh, my name's Molly. Um, I noticed your... Uh, wonderful introduction um, with lots of reference to your previous career um, in human rights law and you sound like from that introduction a kind of human rights hero you've 
written human rights books and you've won awards for being a human rights lawyer and that's very inspirational. Um, yet you had the chance to prevent the extradition of um, Tala Hassan and Barbara Ahmed if you'd um, acceded to the private prosecution request of Carl Watkins and you didn't take it. Um, and I just wonder how you felt about the weight of that responsibility, making that decision, um, knowing that Barbara Ahmed and Tala Hassan were definitely going to have their human rights breached by prolonged solitary confinement in America. Um, and do you feel that since becoming DPP that your um, previous unstinting commitment to human rights has wavered slightly? Um, Thank you. I'll deal with that in two yeah. parts. As yeah. for the decision on the private prosecution, we asked for the material that was being relied on in the private prosecution and looked at it. Have you seen it, the material in the private prosecution, by any chance? It comprised two statements by the two defendants uh, in very vague terms how they may or uh, may not have had some involvement with the website. They were the only two statements in the case. And then a printout from a number of websites which post-dated the alleged offence, and that was it. And we had to decide decide whether that was sufficient evidence um, to bring a private prosecution, and, and it was patently obvious uh, that that was not evidence on which you could bring a private prosecution. The district judge ruled, I think the day after my decision, that it was an abusive process in any event because these were campaigners and supporters of the individuals who were trying to try them in our courts, and he thought that was an inappropriate use of our courts. So it's very important, if we're going to make comments about this and suggest people's standards may be moving, that you look at the material that was actually before us uh, and ask yourself whether you would have come to the same legal decision or not. Um, as for um, previous career, etc., etc., I spent a lot of my previous uh, career questioning um, authorities for not prosecuting where they should have done. There have been long campaigns by families of individuals, um, some of whom died at the hands of um, uh, at the state, uh, concerned about cases they hadn't prosecuted. Um, and I was representing them, saying some of these cases require prosecutions. Uh, and I've carried on that. Uh, in that vein. One of the things we've worked very hard at, to take an example, is uh, prosecuting cases of domestic violence and rape. Now, um, when I was in individual practice, I was concerned about the fact that uh, cases weren't being prosecuted. Since I've been in office, I've spent a lot of time trying to make sure that the right cases are probably in the right way. Now, others will have to judge at the end of the exercise whether I've done it rightly or wrongly, but one thing I have done is put my reasoning in the public domain. If you'd read my decision about the private prosecution, because I did give an explanation, you'd have appreciated there were only two statements, and I summarised what was in them. I also summarised the other reasons why we didn't prosecute. So if I'm going to be accountable, as I want to be invisible, there is a bit of responsibility on you to read my statement before saying I may have adopted different standards now to standards I had before. Okay, thank you. I think we might have time for just one more intervention from Brad, yeah, and I mean, a question from me, then we wrap up. A, a vaguely related question. Um, what made the McKinnon case different to the cases of Baba Ahmed and Talib Hassan? Yeah, very relevant. Well, the decision... Um, in relation to Gary McKinnon was the Home Secretary's decision, not my decision, and therefore that's not really a question for me to answer. As you know, um, when the Home Secretary announced her decision, she announced that um, I would then consider whether or not he could be now tried in this jurisdiction. That's something uh, that I am considering at the moment. But the decision was her decision, uh, not a decision of mine, and not one Um, quite rightly, on which I was consulted, um, nor one in which I saw the materials. I would not expect it uh, to have done so, and I didn't. So really, that's for her, not me. Can I ask a rapid question, Kira? Because we we need to finish in about five minutes or so. But one thing that's always puzzled me is, you're a single practitioner. You know these chambers things, we're single practitioners, and you're very much individuals. 
And you suddenly, from, you know, managing Darling Street maybe a bit, suddenly end up running this enormous operation. Was that, was that, so, was that, did that produce unexpected surprises? Was it easier than you thought it would be? Was it much, much harder? Were there unexpected challenges? How has it changed the way in which you work? It was, it was, uh, it was a big change. I mean, broadly speaking, as a practitioner, you're building teams of two, three, four to present a case. That team is there for the duration of the case. It then changes for the next case, and you don't have permanent members of the team. Um, and so I went from that um, on a Friday evening to um, being head of the CPS, uh, acquiring um, then about 8,000 staff and um, all of the um, responsibility for the decisions that we've made. Um, broadly speaking, I... Uh, head up the legal decision making within the organisation. We've got a chief executive who heads up the corporate decision making and he's experienced in um, uh, finance, um, human resources, etc, etc. So I didn't step into the chief executive role which I think would have been extremely difficult um, uh, to do for obvious reasons and we've got teams of professionals who um, who operate the corporate functions for us. But I have been dragged in, obviously, to corporate governance, how you run a big organisation. I have to say, I found it absolutely fascinating, um, absolutely fascinating in terms of how one goes about ensuring that the, the organisation is run properly, run well, brought in within the financial constraints we've got, um, and how you set the sort of governance structure for a big organisation if you want it to operate in the way that you expect it to operate. Others may find it tedious for whatever... Um, uh, reason I've actually found it very, very interesting. And are you available for uh, reappointment? How does it work? Is it, you it's said a, five years, and you know, I'm just trying to check when you started. Ooh, we're getting. It's a fixed. <laughs> it's a fixed five-year contract which runs out at the end of October next year. Oh, can, can be renewed. Uh, any decision about um, who the next DPP is is for the Attorney General. It's for the Attorney. The Attorney General for Dominic Green. Right. Well, uh, I think I think we better. We better call a halt to it now. Uh, I'm just uh, thinking that the stage is a little bit forbidding because we're so high. But uh, I think notwithstanding that, we had a conversational feel. I was looking at this very much from the point of view of, of how it operates. And I think the combination of questions from the floor and Twitter interventions, and particularly innovative, the comments, meant that we got actually just as I hoped we would under the skin of the subject. And I hope you felt over the hour and nearly 20 minutes, now and 50 minutes we've been doing this, that you learned a little bit about the uh, CPS, about what it's like to run it, and the challenges that the head of such an operation uh, faces. And in a way, that's what we're trying to do with this series. So we've got uh, Mr. Justice Rabinder Singh, High Court judge coming on November the 7th, and we're going to be doing exactly the same thing with him. And uh, then I'm not sure, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, we've persuaded Professor Sir Roy Good, CBE, QC, to, uh, to get into it in quite the same way. And it may well be that my colleague, Professor Bridge, may be leading on that one. But you never know. <laughs> you never know. And then uh, next term, on, uh, I'm delighted to say, St. Valentine's Day, we have Jean-Paul Costa, who is a really good man, who is a former president of the European Court of Human Rights, who's up for everything, very innovative. And we have uh, Baroness Hale, as I said earlier, coming, who's going to do exactly the same sort of thing. 
So we're going to run these as conversations. And uh, I think it's great that Bradley's been uh, behind so much of this. He's made it possible. These sorts of things often go wrong. And it's really important that they go right. And it's down to Bradley here on my left, Bradley Bourne. I want to thank him for what he's done, for driving this forward with great energy and initiative. But I have to say, uh, as we wrap up, uh, I don't think really we could have had a better individual to initiate this thing. The, the absolute clarity of the answers and the succinctness of them and the willingness, even though a senior legal functionary, to engage in this, uh, let's call it an experiment, the willingness to engage in this has been fantastic. And as we wind down, I'd like you just uh, to join with me in expressing our gratitude in a non-tweeting, traditional manner for the bravura performance of our DPP, Keir Stormer.